This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. Don't forget, you can listen to Times Radio on your DAB radio, in your car, in your kitchen, in the shower, if you must. Uh, or you can download the uh, Times Radio app, or get us on your smart speaker, or the website, or uh, if you want to, just let me know, and I'll fax it over to you. But here on the podcast, we always bring you the best bits, the columnist panel, and the big thing, which we do at 11 o'clock. Coming up on today's episode... We're talking tourism because the sun's out and the holidays have already started in Scotland and Northern Ireland. They'll be starting soon in England and Wales. Uh, so we're going to take a tour of the UK, find out how the tourism industry is coping with the cost of living crisis and the staff shortages and the fact that people are, can't leave the country because all the planes are grounded, apart from the one to Rwanda. Uh, so that's coming up in our big thing in a moment. In a minute, we'll have our columnist, James Forsyth and Melanie Reed. But first, as everyone on Friday, let's take a look at what we learned this week. We learned that Tory MPs were really not happy with Boris Johnson saying he was to go on and on until 2030. He has lost the plot. It is completely nuts. As Wimbledon got underway, it emerged that tennis clubs are struggling to source tennis balls. Apparently supply issues are to blame. Still, good to know it's not just a cabinet suffering from a shortage of balls. Oh, yes, sir. We learned that reading between the lines, I'm not sure that Theresa May is a fan of the government's Brexit plan. This bill is not, in my view, legal in international law. It will not achieve its aims and it will diminish the standing of the United Kingdom in the eyes of the world. And I cannot support it. Mm, I don't think she likes it. Uh, we learned that Dean Doris knows even less about rugby than I do, but that I'm not the Secretary of State for sport. My long-standing memory is that 2003 drop goal. Um, yeah, bloody the man is at 11 o'clock in the morning. You do surprise me. We learned that Angela Rayner's got a new slogan. Before he finally says, enough is enough, is enough, is enough. Donna Summer of discontent there. Dominic Raab is a winker. <laughs> she talks about working people. She talks about working people. Oh, she talks about. Oh, working... Still can't look at that wink. But the main thing that I learned this week. Is it, this is a real place. Kate in Fingringho. Fing, fing. Let's gloss over that. It's a real village. 
stop sniggering. It's a real... <laughs> fingering hoe is a real place. Fingering hoe is a real place. I think I might move there. <laughs> Best place to live, yeah. Sunday Times. <laughs> That's what we learned this week. Now let's find out what we learned with The Columnists. The Columnists with Formel, James Forsyth and Melanie Reid on Times Radio. Yes, good morning, Melanie Reid. Good morning, Matt. And good morning, James Forsyth. Morning, Matt. I suppose we should probably start with the big uh, political story. Uh, Chris Pincher resigning as uh, chief, Deputy Chief Whip, but remaining as a Tory MP, despite admitting himself he'd embarrassed himself and others after drinking too much on Wednesday night. Melanie, as someone who is not a dweller in the Westminster village, does this make any sense to you? It's kind of... Uh, what it reminds me of absolutely is what happened during the major government. And I know you boys were far too young to remember all this. But, you know, when you were living through a government, a, a government that was worn out, tired, really needed refreshing, that they reached this point where suddenly there was scandal after scandal after scandal. The government had no policies. Uh, and, and you, you know, there was... There was David Meller, there was his sex stuff, there was, there was Neil Hamilton, Cash for Questions, Jonathan Aitken. It was just, you became absolutely sort of sickened with the whole lot and you just, um, became really teased off and, and, and switched off and you knew that the end had come. And that's how I, that's how I now feel about this government and, 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 uh, you know, they're just, it's just sleazy and horrible, isn't it? Uh, I mean, it's also, you know, if you drill down into the bits of it, it's also funny. You know, the fact, apparently this guy wrote a monthly column on drink for a magazine. You know, I mean, it's, it's, and, and, and it's nominative, it's nominative determinism, isn't it? But I mean, apart from all those, the funny stuff, it's so sad, but I'm so fed up of it, honestly, honestly. And, uh, James, the problem the Tories have got is that so many people think like Melanie now. Yeah, and, and as Melanie says, it, it, it does have a very 1990s redux feel to it. You know, Yet another scandal involving Tory MPs, yet more spe- speculation about whether there's going to be a by-election. Um, and I think, this, I think this is all just making things worse and worse because it, it makes it much harder for the government to say what it's doing. It makes the government look 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 tired, exhausted. Um and I think it's you know this is it, it is also a problem because you can't say that the deputy chief whip is a kind of random backbencher. You know, this is someone who is in, integral to party discipline, uh to how you know, you know if this had been somebody else who would this person have been referred to but the deputy chief whip? Um, and, and, and I think that, 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 that's the crux of the problem. And it's also another issue, I think, for the government that this is not the first time uh, that Chris Pincher has resigned. Well, this, yeah, is, this, yeah. this is the other thing. Is I suppose if uh, random backbencher no one's heard of and hasn't had any real contact with number 10 does something stupid, that's one thing. This is a guy who's literally done this before has resigned for getting drunk and being inappropriate, is then brought back, is warns Boris Johnson's warned not to bring him back, brings him back anyway, and then sort of stands by him. And so I suppose this is why this is a thread that does run right the way back to the door of number 10, Melanie. Absolutely. I mean, apparently he is even suggesting he had a minder 
at events to ensure he didn't drink too much and cause trouble. You know, they knew that it was such an open secret. The guy had somebody on guard to stop him doing this. I mean, it's so self-inflicted. Isn't that, isn't that, you know, I mean, isn't that what he keep coming back to with Boris Johnson? That he, 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 he just, he doesn't take, um, good behavior seriously. He especially takes sexual misconduct, uh, sexual misbehavior. You know, he just regard, disregards it. And, and we know that, but it, oh, it, it just keeps being, you know, we hear it again, again, again. It's, it's extraordinary. I suppose it, it, it's a sign of the, I don't know what the word is, James perilousness of Boris Johnson's position that actually the Prime Minister of the country feels like the uh, the um, he's so desperate for people who he thinks can help save him he will turn a blind eye to all of this was actually if you think back in the past I know David Cameron, Gordon Van Tony Blair they would sort of jettison people who they whose misdemeanors would sufficiently dent their own uh reputation but actually boris johnson has so few people who are any good who might be able to help shore up his position he's willing to let someone into his inner circle just to try and cling on yeah i also think that you can't you can't get around the fact that this is a broader westminster problem just look at the issues the smp have had recently uh, and there 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 is there is there is an issue with the fact that um so much of westminster life are these kind of events that are both professional and social and are excessively lubricated with alcohol and i think that you know i think that this combination of the problem you know is there and the fact that you've got this problem you know, you, you know, this comes kind of hot on the heels of the SNP's difficulties. You know, it, it, it clearly is a problem. It is also, though, again, difficult for Boris Johnson that you know when his job was in particular danger, um, and you know Chris Pinchel was one of the people who rallied that shadow whipping operation that was sent out to to go and save him. So it's not like this is not like kind of Neil Parrish where it was kind of oh you know MP who'd been around for quite a long time you know um, uh, starts looking at tractors and it leads to all sorts of old places. You know, this 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 is this is a far more political story than than, than just a kind of uh, a story of kind of um, uh, personal failings. And do you, do you think, James, that this actually ends by the end of the day that Chris Pincher isn't a Tory MP anymore? Um, I think that my my instinct will be that they will not want another by-election. So I think <laughs> that um, uh, I think so, I mean the, the kind of obvious place for this to end up is some kind of you know he'll step down while there's a party investigation to what happened. And you know, see whether see what comes next. I think again, in all these things, it is more difficult because um, Chris Pincher has stepped down before to be investigated by the Conservative <laughs> Party. So um, <laughs> um, that that does that, that does rather complicate matters. And actually, if you look at the uh, look at the election results, uh, it was a Labour seat before 1997. Uh, uh, but in fact, in 1997, it was uh, it was won by Labour with a majority of seven and a half thousand. Chris Pincher won it in 2001. Uh, he got a majority of 19,000 last time. I mean, as we all know, that's nothing. Nothing when it comes to by-elections. Um, Labour Party uh, is still in second place there. Uh, many, James makes a good point because the SNP have had all these um, 
problems as well. Ian Blackford, you know, the uh, just just the humble crofter. Uh, <laughs> um, Ian Blackford, uh, accu- accused of trying to sort of cover things up uh, on behalf of uh, the um, SNP MP Patrick Grady. Uh, this, all parties have these problems, don't they? Of course they do. Of course they do. Uh, I think the, the the Blackford one is interesting because there is there's this sort of tension between the the, the Westminster group of the SNP and and en, and uh, Edinburgh the, the the powerhouse in Edinburgh around Nicola Sturgeon and uh, the relationship between Blackford and Sturgeon and the sort of suggestion that Blackford may be a bit tired of it all. Uh, there there is a lot of of. Uh, uh, of stuff there, the suggestion he's not really doing a good enough job for Nicola, but um, he, he nevertheless he he does give the good the SNP a good showing partly because he gets that opportunity, uh, as we all know, that opportunity during during um, Prime Minister's questions to uh, to give the to give the SNP a real voice. Um, so it it's but he's not controlling it. There's there's the Joanna Cherry, the problems with. Uh, um, uh, you know, she's very upset about the way he's handled uh, the treatment of her. So it's yeah, every, and I'm sure Labour. But we're just not. We just haven't had the time. Journalism hasn't had the time to put the energies into to finding out where all the, the Labour tensions are at the moment. We're too busy with we're too busy with the Tories. So it's you know it's 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 part of the fun of the game, but it's all there. Yeah, it's all there. All, yeah, and I suppose the sort of complicity then of all no party really wants to go in too hard on it because they they know they've got their own problems on yeah, on their yeah, side. Yeah. Uh, talking We're all of, human. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Talking of um, major national institutions uh, facing massive problems, James, you've used your column today to uh, take a look at the Met, um, which is you know as as dysfunctional as Westminster, arguably. Yeah, I mean, it is the Met has long prided itself on being the kind of first modern police force in the world, but it now finds itself in kind of you know in, in the kind of policing equivalent of of special measures. And I think you know we should worry anyone who cares about the capital because the city doesn't remain kind of prosperous and successful of a dysfunctional police force. Um, and, and so, how do you reform it? I think one of the problems is, but the Met is trying to kind of serve two masters. You know, so um, it, the new commissioner will be appointed by a combination of the Home Secretary and the Mayor, but with the Home Secretary really making the decision. And I mean, it creates this difficulty, which is... Hi. No, keep going. It's all right. Yep. The, um, that you've got a situation where, uh, you know, Sadiq Khan forces out Cresta to Dick, um, but then he should surely then be able to appoint her successor so that voters can judge whether that was the right call or not. But instead, there is this problem that no one is really in charge. And as you've seen since the Met was put into special measures, you just have City Hall and central government blame each other. You know, you know, the, you know the, 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 the Tories of Westminster suggest that, you know, there should be resignations at City Hall. And Sadiq Khan says, well, I've tried to change the Met, but Pretty Patel and Boris Johnson are stopping me. And I think until you simplify this accountability structure, you won't sort out the Met's problems. Everyone will just say, it's down to the other guy, and that's the problem. And is it? Yes, yeah, it's a very complicated. Uh, how is it? How is it work? How is the police working in um, Scotland, Melanie? Because you, you've got well, the sort of single merged thing. Well, in 2013, they they merged. The, they they got rid of uh, you know all the all the different police forces, and they 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 started a central Scottish police force. And of course, there's two ways of looking at that. One is that it was a money saver in that it meant you didn't have to have 
you know, X number of, of, of chief constable salaries and uh, assistant chief constable salaries. But uh, the, more probably, the reason is it, it, it centralizes power. It, it gives the government much more power over a central police force. Um, that There have been huge teething problems. I think it's fair to say those teething problems continue to a large extent. Um, when you have political masters... And you have a police force. It's there. There is always a problem. There's also at a human level. Can you? I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever worked for two bosses, but it's impossible. You really can't. Well, those those of us who who write news stories and comic pieces and appear on the radio are slightly familiar with having multiple <laughs> masters to serve. <laughs> And just think about the, the, the we we none of us have quite the amount of responsibility that you do when you're running the Met. But try to imagine trying to have two bosses and to 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 carry that weight. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. No one wants the jobs, but it's quite understandable. James, you must have to, to try to write, decide what you're going to write for the Spectator, what you're going to write for the Times. Yeah, no, I think I think, <laughs> but I think I think Melanie is right that that, that the paucity of candidates to replace Greta Dick is people just have this view like, look. I just want to stay out of this political bum fight. You know, I mean, if you think through this, right, when Boris Johnson was mayor, he forced out Ian Blair, much to Jackie Smith's chagrin. When Sadiq Khan was mayor, he forced out Cressida Dick, much to Priti Patel's irritation. And I mean, this is the worry, is that you come and you take the job and you just know that, you, you, the, 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 that you're going to get caught up in this political tug of war, especially because um, both Sadiq Khan and Priti Patel are better at playing to their res- and their respective galleries than kind of getting things done. And you know that you're going to get caught up in this whole, you know, what 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 should be the style of policing? What should be the priorities? And you know that you know next time there's an extinction rebellion demonstration or whatever, you're 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 going to be being pulled in two different ways by your two respective um, bosses. Yeah, and, and and until they they saw that, I suppose it's one of the reasons why they can't always get people to apply for the job, and then the reason it doesn't then work, regardless of who gets it. Um, uh, just finally, uh, Melanie Lewis Hamilton has called for older voices with offensive views to be refused a platform which to make. Well, I think there was a good argument for saying we probably don't need to hear any more uh, from uh, Bernie Eccleston. Um, that's probably maybe that's what he he should just yeah. That, that maybe that's a start. I'm not, not all for deplatforming, uh, but maybe just say let's let's stop phoning Bernie Eccleston. I think the bigger issue, isn't it, that sometimes we need to silence the old farts. You know, <laughs> the, I mean, this is, but you know, that that we were all young once, but and sadly, lots of people have forgotten that, and and you know, especially the in sport, the Blazerati, older sportsmen. They're the slowest to grasp the fact that they're no longer, uh, they've no longer got it. They're no longer relevant. Um, and, you know, when young men forget they're old and become the establishment, oh, they're deadly. They really are. They really are. Um, but yeah, it's, all, it's but also, it, it's all, sometimes it's worse than that. It's when they pass through the establishment and out the other side. <laughs> Retired old farts who forget the, you know, without the responsibility of, you know, running an organisation and maybe slightly curtailing what they think. Just bl- blathering on. Uh, well, they, ha- they have no filter. Yeah, that's the other. The, fil- yeah, yeah. the, the filter is removed. I mean, and, and I mean, you know, you can have this with in your own family. Your, your grandfather, you know, you don't take your grandfather to the pub anymore in case he says something dreadful. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, yeah, but then that's different. You don't put. You don't. That's why you don't put him on the telly. I suppose that's the uh, the answer. What do you think, James? <laughs> 
I I think that the, he is right, which is you've got these people and they they think what they're saying. You know, they think that somehow saying things that you're not meant to say is terribly brave and different. You know, when actually sometimes it just makes you look like an idiot. Sometimes there is a reason why people don't <laughs> say things. There's a reason why the Nelson PK, you know, was foolish to use uh, you know, such such a racially loaded term. You know, there's a reason why Bernie Ecclestone declaring that you know Vladimir Putin is a top man who we take a bullet for. You know, it's not kind of brave contrarian thinking. It just it just does reflect that you are a bit of an idiot. Um, and a period of silence on your part would be most welcome. Well, unfortunately, we need to have a period of silence on your part now, but only because we've run out of time and not uh, because either of you are idiots. James Forsyth and Melanie Reid, then, of course, you can read them both in the Times of the Week. James on a Friday, Melanie on a Saturday. You read me on a Saturday as well. Uh, this week, I've written about why we're basically being run by government by lads, lads, lads. Boris Johnson just loves the stag too. Uh, so that's my column in the Times this week. Right, uh, coming up next, we will have our big thing, which is looking at tourism in the UK. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yes, the weather's improving, the sun is out, but can you get away? <laughs> there are so many things threatening the tourism industry right now. Uh, still reeling for the effects of COVID-19. The cost of living crisis is tightening people's ability to spend money. There's all the trouble at the airports. The strikes means you can't go on the trains. So even if you do decide to holiday in the UK, what you're going to find, well, there's a report out by Barclays Bank suggesting that hospitality and leisure sector are facing major problems, shortages of staff, eight in ten tourism companies. Oh, sorry, nine in ten hospitality and leisure businesses are struggling to recruit, are struggling to find cleaning staff, front of house staff, delivery staff. Uh, there are also problems about rising bills. Uh, transport costs are up something like 38%. Utility bills up 37%. Bars and restaurants are struggling to hire people. But all of the rest of us just actually want a holiday. UK hospitality is just a third of... Uh, only a third of hospitality business are even turning a profit. So where does this leave the tourism industry? Let's start with Rachel Farrington from Visit Britain. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm not bad at all. I'm not bad at all. I mean, after 
two years of uh, um, restrictions of one kind or another or anxiety about COVID. This should be the big boom, shouldn't it? Absolutely. To put it into some context, this was a sector worth more than £127 billion a year pre-pandemic, but we've seen a loss of about £147 billion over 2020 and 21. We've got quite a mixed picture for the summer ahead. So we're seeing inbound predicting around 60% of 2019 levels. And again, we're seeing some good numbers for domestic holidays, but in some areas um, we are seeing a slower return to full business operation. Let's um, let's pick our way through that then. In terms of inbound, people coming from abroad to the UK, still only at 60% of 2019 levels. Do you think, what, what's, what's, what, what's behind that? Is it still people concerned about COVID? Is it the cost of living crisis because, you know, inflation and bills are going up right around the world? Or is it that, that we've just dropped off people's to-do lists, that, that fashions have changed and actually those numbers might never come back? So it's a real mix of things. We're definitely seeing financial issues coming to the forefront, people looking for value for money from their holidays and also those deals and discounts. But also there is a perception that Britain will always be here and you can come whenever. We're trying to drive that and say, this is the year to come to Britain. We've got so much going on this year, starting with a jubilee all the way through to the Commonwealth Games. Um, there really is, uh, this year really is the time to come to Britain. And uh, in terms of then uh, domestic uh, tourism, what are the challenges that uh, tourism businesses are facing in attracting Brits holidaying here? Um, so I think a lot of places um, are seeing uh, later bookings and shorter bookings, which is giving them uncertainty. And when businesses have had such a struggled uh, couple of years, they really need that certainty. So my top tips are to book in advance and uh, to really shop around and look for those quieter destinations that aren't seeing as many tourists. So we know the the northeast, just about four percent of people are looking to take a domestic overnight trip there. But actually, there's some beautiful coastlines down the Northumberland coast. You've got Newcastle. There is plenty to do in these areas. We just want to see a business return to them. We had a lovely holiday actually a few years ago in New Biggin by the Sea. So I can, I can, I can, I mean, it's a long away from where we live, but yeah, it was very nice. It's very nice. And you're right. It's very quiet. You know, the weather's nice and you've got the sea and, uh, you know, Hadrian's Wall and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's, you know, there is all the stuff there. Do you, I mean, to some extent, I suppose, um, the, 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 the headwinds which are blowing against people taking holidays, maybe the reason, uh, that people are going for a shorter period of time is they've still only got a certain amount of money. And whereas it might have previously got them a week, now it can only be like a long weekend. Look, we know the cost of living is a massive challenge for a lot of um, consumers, but there is plenty of free and affordable things to do here in Britain. We have uh, national parks, 34 areas of outstanding national beauty. We've got the coastal paths, but we've also got those kind of free museums, whether it be um, the World Museum in Liverpool or the Science Museum in London. There is plenty to do on a budget. And have you seen sort of a, a change in sort of fashions of the sort of things that people are either where they want to stay or where um, or the things they want to do. It's sort of, I don't know, bed and breakfast out in favour of Airbnbs or are they coming back or or do we want, you know, roller coasters or do we want to relax? <laughs> what, what's, what's the sort of things that are doing well and, and the things that aren't? So we're seeing the self-catering uh, lodges and caravans doing really well this summer. Um, but the top activities people are really keen on are kind of trying the local food and drink. And those hiking and walking activities, I think after being locked up for so long, everyone's really keen to get out and enjoy the countryside as well. And what do you, do? You, what sort of welcome do you think people are going to get? Because in the past, there's always been this slight concern that British British holidays are sort of a 
I, mean, I don't want to say a bit rubbish, a bit amateurish or not quite up to the stand you might get if you went to a sort of full-blown tourist resort. Do you think that's changing? Absolutely. Um, we've got a real reputation in Britain for um, be offering a fantastic holiday. And there really is something for everyone, whatever you're interested in. Britain has it. You can be in a city and within a couple of hours, you can be on the coast. So there is that range of destinations. And as I'm sure kind of UK Health Charity will speak to, the businesses really are keen to welcome people back and are very pleased to see your business coming back to them. And what are you going to be doing? What's your what's your secret tip? What's the best place you've been in Britain? You must have you must have been to all the good places. So my top tip is um, Clearwell Caves in Gloucestershire. I did it just before the pandemic and it was something that I never expected to be able to do in Britain. But we were hundreds of feet below um, Gloucestershire crawling around in caves. And it's not something for everyone, but it was so exciting and something I tell everyone about. So what's it called? Clearwell Cave. Clearwell, Clearwell Cave. Clearwell Cave. Gloucestershire. In look at that. That's that is a top top tip. And frankly, given everything that's going on in the news, just going hundreds <laughs> of meters underground. It was just something really different <laughs> and something I never expected to do in Britain. But uh, I, I keep telling people about it and they're recommending it now. Very good. Well, that's really good. That's that's that is a top tip, Rachel. Thanks so much for that. That's Rachel Farrington from Visit Britain. That's that's talking about you know the tourists and where the tourists are going. But what, what's it going to be like when you get there, whether it's a, whatever the hospitality business is, bars, restaurants, hotels? Kate Nichols is Chief Executive of UK Hospitality and joins us now. Hi, Kate. Good morning, Matt. So I was just looking at that, um, that Barclays report. Nine in ten hospitality and leisure businesses struggling to recruit personnel. Uh, a fifth of bars and restaurants are finding, are finding it difficult to hire waiting staff. Um, is that, does that tally with the sort of thing that UK Hospitality is looking at? Yes, it does. And unfortunately, this is something that has bedeviled the sector for, for the last sort of nine months since we've reopened. The acute labour shortages that we're seeing across the economy as a whole are taking their toll on, on hospitality uh, as well. Uh, and what we're seeing is around nine out of 10 of our businesses saying they've got hard to fill vacancies. And actually half of our businesses are having to restrict their hours of opening, their capacity, their occupancy, or turning away bookings simply because they don't have staff to fulfil demand. So when you do turn up, you are going to get fantastic service. You are going to get wonderfully looked after. But we are arbitrarily limiting our our sales and limiting what we can offer in order to make sure that we're protecting that customer experience. And that means the economy as a whole is losing out about £22 billion worth of revenue and £7 billion of tax take for the exchequer. And what is it that's uh, driving that shortage of staff? Is it um, because uh, European Union workers have gone home and haven't come back post-pandemic? Is it that Brits just don't want to, you know, the economy in this sort of weird world we're in, the economy seems to be doing quite well, at least employment-wise. There's very low levels of unemployment, lots of vacancies, and there's an easier way to earn what are quite often um, uh, minimum wage uh, jobs, which aren't, you know, being on your feet all day, running around in restaurants, being shouted at by angry tourists. Well, I think there is the breadth of jobs and roles that we've got available within hospitality. So I would counter that suggestion that they are minimum wage jobs that are long hours and and, and hard work. These There are entry level jobs, yes, but people rapidly scale up to be able to get really good salaries. And we've got vacancies at all levels. So restaurant managers, hotel managers, GMs, all of those senior level uh, roles, as well as executive chefs 
we've got vacancies at the moment and it, you you identified the, the the main factor we have a labor market that is incredibly tight we've got 3.7% unemployment in this country incredibly low furlough did a very good job at protecting um jobs throughout the the covid crisis which means that we've come back uh with 1.3 million vacancies record levels of vacancies there simply aren't enough people available in the labor market to fill all those vacancies um and in part you've got changes that in that affect hospitality in particular we did have it was covid related a large number of foreign workers went home at christmas 2020 and covid travel restrictions have stopped them coming back the same for our foreign students who couldn't travel to to study uh, and they make up a large proportion of of uh, the hospitality workforce um but we haven't been able to get those people back post covid restrictions being lifted so the hospitality sector is facing one in 10 jobs being unfilled at the moment and that's severely impacting on our ability to operate at full capacity grow and recover and help the economy recover It's interesting that point you make. So um Hillary's just messaged in. Ask about the effects of Brexit on our hospitality. European staff went home feeling unwanted. That doesn't feel like that's quite right from what you're saying that actually it was just sort of the the when the pandemic hit, people went home maybe because it was sort of around that Christmas time as well. They didn't come back and now they've got, you know, wherever they are they've gone off and found other things to do and so there hasn't been that sort of supply of is it to do with brexit or is that or was that just making what was already probably a tough pandemic situation worse i i think you're right it brexit makes it harder to resolve post pandemic but i think the causes of the labor shortages across the economy are not simply down to brexit they are driven by covid and this is a global challenge that you're seeing across across the the world not just in hospitality but across all of the economy uh and you're undoubtedly seeing a large number of people who've opted out of the workforce altogether the big increase that you've seen is an increase in people who are economically inactive um and you've also had people who who've changed their their work life balance as a result of caring and and health issues arising from covid but for our staff it, it was it was more to do with the fact that uk citizens moved out of cities and moved back home during the pandemic uh foreign workers moved back to to their homes um across Europe and the rest of the world and you haven't seen those workers returning in the same numbers so i don't think it is just to do with brexit but the immigration regime post brexit undoubtedly makes it harder for us to resolve that i wonder kate the extent to which you think the government is gripped by these issues you talk about 20 billion pound shortfall but essentially because uh, uh, pubs and restaurants that could be open seven days a week are limiting themselves to four because they've got the staff obviously if there are more people in work they'll be paying more tax It's a big leveling up thing as well. If right across the country you have a booming um, tourism industry, you know, it brings people to places and they spend money and it keeps people there and working. Do you feel like the government is gripped enough by this as an issue? I, I'm not sure that necessarily they they they've got to grips with with the the challenge that we're facing and the measures that need to be taken. And also, as you say, this is a this is a leveling up issue. We are one of the sectors of the economy that was forecast to grow pre-pandemic by five percent year on year and generate one in six of net new jobs. And these are jobs at local level, so you don't have to leave your hometown in order to work and get a good career in hospitality or tourism or the wider visitor economy. So this is important to places like. Redcar Blackpool the north of Devon all parts of the the country where you have high levels of unemployment these are jobs and good quality jobs that can help to to regenerate those areas 
uh, and to, to attract inward investment into those areas. And also it's, it's part and parcel about tackling the cost of living crisis as well. The best way that we can tackle that is to help the economy to grow as rapidly as we can, give these people jobs um, and allow the economy to flourish. And at the moment, it does feel as though we are battling against a, a sort of perfect storm of limitations on, on our, our ability to recruit staff and operate at full capacity. Also, those cost of doing business challenges, the tsunami of inflationary cost pressures that our businesses are facing um, at the same time as a cost of living squeeze on the consumers. So we are seeing a perfect storm for a sector of the economy, which was our third largest export earner pre-COVID, 11% of GDP, 7% of employment, and one that we all need to get back on its feet as quickly as possible. Um, just to bring Rachel Fountain again from Visit Britain. Rachel, I mean, I've, I've been writing about sort of tourism industry for... Oh best part of 20 years and there's been this constant complaint that it's just not given the the sort of the political focus heft sense of importance that i don't know the bankers in london might do or uh, other other sectors despite it being such a nationwide uh, national thing do you do you you're, you're part of visit britain's job is partly to bring people here but also to poke ministers and give it some focus do you feel like it's got enough focus from government it's absolutely a massive sector. We're kind of we were one of the third biggest um, uh, service exports uh, pre-pandemic. So it just shows the scale of the sector, and it's all about how do we make sure that those different levers within government are working towards growing that sector as well. I think Kate's done a brilliant um, piece of outlining how we can impact levelling up. We are a natural deliverer of levelling up. We get people out into the countryside, the coastal areas, all of the nations and uh, towns across. Uh, Britain. So we're definitely playing our role and um, we, we love it when uh, people like yourselves are talking about us. <laughs> uh, but let's go to some of our biggest tourist attractions now. But we'll let the fact, we'll just cross the river. I could have, if I stood up and walked around the other side of the studio, I'd be able to almost see uh, the Tower of London. Andrew Jackson is there. He's a tower director. Hi, Andrew. Good morning, Matt. Uh, nice to have you with us. We've also got on the line uh, Nicola Tasker, up the, uh, up the A303, director for Stonehenge English Heritage. Hi, Nicola. Hello, Matt. Um, Andrew, first of all, um, give, us the, give us a sales pitch to the Tower of London. How is business doing? Well, for historic royal palaces as a whole, because the Tower is only one of the sites we look after, we're running at about 70% of our 2019-20 footfall and then honing in on the Tower. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, things have been going really well. We're at about 80%. So uh, if I look out the window now, uh, the Yemen water tours are full. We've got a, a load of people going around our moat to see our spectacular flower display called Super Bloom. And things are, are going much better than we had anticipated by this time of the year. That's it. And what do you think is um, driving that? Well, I think it's easier to get into the cities than it is to get out into the countryside at the moment. We're seeing uh, a very loyal domestic audience. Through the pandemic, we had a lot of domestic visitors Quite a few people who've never been to the Tower of London, who live within London or within easy striking distance. And that percentage has, has continued. So we're at about 30% domestic visitors at the moment, which is better than pre-pandemic. And then we've had quite a good proportion of the US and North American market come back. So 36% of our visitors at the moment are from the States and from Canada, which is brilliant. Where we haven't seen the return yet is from our near European friends, from France and Germany in particular, who previously would each be about 10%, but are currently only about 4% of our total. So that's the market we're hoping will come back over time. And what about you talked about, obviously, Tower of London as part of historic royal palaces, Hampton Court Palace, Banking House, Kensington Palace, Cube House, but Hillsborough Castle as well. What's the, what's the situation like in Northern Ireland, do you know? 
Yeah, in Hillsborough, it's slower to pick up. Um, so before the pandemic, we were just getting on track with Hillsborough. It was a very new attraction for us. We'd only been operating it for a year and we're just about hitting the numbers we'd anticipated. Um, it's falling behind at the moment. Uh, the inbound tourism to Northern Ireland doesn't seem to have picked up. And it's quite a challenging market to get people down to Hillsborough from Belfast, from the north, or coming up from uh, the Republic of Ireland to the south. But we're kind of working on that now. And again, that's just a fabulous offer to go and see. Uh, but that was a good selling point of this, Andrew. Well, it's good to Nicola now at Stonehenge. What's it like? Uh, I mean, in terms of um, uh, ease for getting to Tower of London, Stonehenge is almost the exact opposite. So how's it going with getting toys back to, back to Stonehenge? And, and who are they? It's going very well, thanks, Matt. I mean, we were anticipating a really a strong summer season, and we are still in recovery, uh, obviously, of the of the business at Stonehenge. But seventy um, percent of our of our visitors usually come from overseas, and um, as Andrew was saying, we're seeing some recovery of that, particularly independent travellers that come from America. So not the large group tours that we might have had in the past from the states. But then we are also maybe slightly different to Andrew. We're seeing some resurgence from Germany and France and the Netherlands. But these are people who come under their own steam rather than being kind of packaged tourists. So they are coming. But um, again, like Andrew, we are seeing a strong and loyal domestic group. Um, I think one of the results of the pandemic was that um, people not only rediscovered heritage on their doorstep, you know, when we were all kind of locked up over the last few years, uh, people rediscover what was in their own communities. And, and I think some of those heritage sites gave them a feeling of stability and continuity and belonging, some of the things we were, we've been searching for. And, and we're seeing that continue. So those domestic audiences have still got an appetite for heritage and they're certainly still coming to Stonehenge. One of the things I was, I was reading about Stonehenge is that part of the problem is when you had great big buses of Americans coming in, they'd turn up, they'd hoover up every tea towel and snow shaker with Stonehenge on, they'd spend loads of money, they'd go in the cafe, and as Brits turn up and we bring our own picnic and we eat it in the car, and we're, not, we're not spending enough money, is that right? I don't think that's a problem at all. I think you're right in that there are two kinds of visitors, you know, very broadly. And um, the domestic visitors, they want to come and have a whole day. They want somewhere where the kids can play and run around. There's plenty of space at Stonehenge for all of that. They often bring a picnic. They're, they're looking for value for money, perhaps even more now than we've seen before. So they want to come and spend four or five hours with us. And that's absolutely great. There are other visitors who might be on a package tour and are on a time constraint. They've got to you know, get back on the bus and see some other sites. But we cater for both of those and, and we're kind of very good at, at steering our offer so that, you know, whatever you want to get out of it, we're able to facilitate that. And that's, uh, that's some uh, top five. I'll tell you what I want to do. Though. Let's round through. I know I asked um, Rachel earlier and she was t- telling us about going caving. Your, let's ask Kate, um, Kate, Nicola and Andrew, your, your top tip, your secret tour. There's somewhere you've been in the UK, which is a top tip. You're not allowed to nominate the Tower of London, Andrew, or any of the other royal palaces. But where, where else have you been in Britain, which, you've just, which you think is a sort of a, a, a top secret tip or somewhere to go? Well, I have to be partisan and say uh, the beach of Bridlington is always one of my favourites. I, I love I love the Yorkshire coast uh, and East Yorkshire in particular. So getting across the moors, uh, possibly on the train that goes across there, and then to to Whitby or anywhere south of that. But but being an East Yorkshire lad myself, that's where I'd love to go again. That's a top tip. Well, I put that on the list. Uh, what about you, Nicola? Um, I think for me, I'll go back to the discussion we had at the beginning about Northumberland. So I was always inspired by Bamborough Castle, which is an amazing castle that sits on the seafront there on a promontory. And um, 
got brilliant beaches and always quite quiet. So, uh, yeah, that would be my vote. That whole coastline up there. The other thing I should ask about, Nicola, when are you ever going to get this tunnel so that I can drive past uh, Stonehenge without sitting in traffic? Have you got any idea when the tunnel might be coming? Well, I think we need to talk to Mr. Grant Shapps about that because the decision <laughs> rests back with him, I think. <laughs> I mean, it's not, It's always nice to see Stonehenge, but it'd be nice to see it at a slightly faster pace. Um, Kate Nichols, your, uh, your top your top's tourism secret? I would have to come just further down the coast in between North Yorkshire and uh, Northumberland and go for my home county of Durham because it has better moors and dales than Yorkshire. <sighs> it has better beaches than Northumberland. <laughs> It has Beamish Museum. It has Bose Museum alongside Barnard Castle. Um, and it has High Force, the, the biggest waterfall, single waterfall drop in, in England. And if I had to choose an attraction, I'd go to Wales and go zip lining in Snowdonia, which is another fantastic experience. Wow. That, well, I don't want us all to fall out and have a fight about exactly which bit of the uh, northeast coast is the best. I feel like we need we need somebody to nominate something in Scotland just so we've got the full set. We talked about um, uh, Hillsborough Castle. Uh, Rachel, have you got a top Scottish tip? Um, I know there's a lot of very good distilleries up there, so I can only four of those. <laughs> you see, that's what you need on holiday. I mean, there's nothing better I like going somewhere than just stumbling across like a nice microbrewery or something like that. That's, uh, that's definitely what you want on holiday. Uh, guys, really good to speak to you. Best of luck with hopefully what will be a, a good summer season. Uh, really appreciate you joining us. That was Andrew Jackson from the Tower of London, uh, Nicola Tasker from uh, Stonehenge, Kate Nichols from UK Hospitality and Rachel Fountain from Visit Britain. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.